This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. gentleman who was writing a book on how weed legalization um, came to be in this country. And I thought it was a really uh, first initial conversation that we had. It was interesting to me because, um, and we will discuss this very briefly because uh, I just want to talk about his ideas for the book. I'm in his book uh, because he interviewed me about working with the Liberal Party of Canada, I think it was like six years before they enacted legalization. It was long before Justin Trudeau was even prime minister. But I thought the book that he wrote was really important. Um, and the reason, there was a few reasons why. The main reason, though, and this was what I thought of immediately when he contacted me, is because I had noticed that there were certain people, um, Jody Emery comes to mind, uh, who was researching the insider um, favors, uh, the, the, the insider information, whatever you want to call it, that there, was, there were just so many senators and former police officers and former politicians and all these people who seem to have a ground floor into the investment part of legalization. Um, but then my guest today expanded it further than that. And he, sorry, his book is called Buzzkill, the corporate corporatization of cannabis. I didn't put it up. Hold on guys. I'm going to put up the picture because that's what a smart podcaster does. <clears throat> so like I said, his, uh, his book, <laughs> now it's loading forever. All for a picture. This is the cover of his book, Buzzkill, the corporatization of cannabis. Please welcome to the show. His name is Michael Devalier. Michael, how are you, buddy? Sorry, I'm going to. I'm this. fine, James. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you. I blame Elon Musk for what's happening with my computer right now because I swear I'm <laughs> clicking it the right time. Um, it's good to see you. Um, thank you for coming. I, listen, there aren't many books written about this subject, and I think that um, you you I, I was going to say you took your time. You I think did probably really thorough research as to not get sued for one thing because there's a lot of powerful people that you sort of you know talk about let's just say in this book what made you want to write it and do you get stoned yourself <laughs> well you know what I, I i don't mean to be avoidant or anything but i i think whether or not i get stoned is kind of immaterial to the issue i was just I mean, kidding i was just certainly I was just, cannabis yeah. so next question yeah, 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 yeah. um 
But to, to write the book, you know, like I've been an advocate for cannabis law reform for about half a century now. <laughs> I mean, I started pretty young and the book has been probably a good 10 years in, in the research. Okay. And so I thought it was about time. You know, I mean, I've written journal articles and I've contributed chapters to books. But to really tell the story, I think a book is the format that was needed. So and, and the important point that I want to make right off the top is that it isn't pro or anti-cannabis use. It just tells the story of cannabis's journey from demonized street drug, we all remember those days, um, to now this glamorized corporate commodity that we have. And it's a fascinating story. And I think, you know, in, in our interview, and I think it was about a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. you provided a really nice piece of it, given the, the direct contact you had with the Liberal Party at that time. So it's a fascinating story. It's not always a pretty one. It uh, will yeah. will shatter your faith in government and regulation of industry. Uh, it gets ugly. I mentioned in the intro about all those people that had a ground floor entry point into the investment of legal. Did did anyone ever was anyone ever asked a question about how these people got the information so quickly and whether or not it was considered inside information? Was there uh, uh, anyone that would, uh, um, any request for an investigation, or or was it all? Sometimes I find things are legal that shouldn't be legal. Was it one of those things? <laughs> you, know? you know, that's a a bit of a major theme of my life is that when we look at drug problems, and I'll get back to your question in a second, but when yes, we sir. look at drug problems. If it's really our legal drug industries, alcohol and tobacco, that account for most drug-related harm, most drug-related deaths, and most drug-related costs to the economy. I mean, far more than all the illegal drugs combined. So you have to ask the question, what is the implication of that for cannabis making this transition from illegal to legal drug. And to, to answer your question, I think a lot of it was being kept, that kind of stuff was being kept under the radar. Now, what we were being told, if we think back to that time in the years leading up, the Liberal Party of Canada's case, there were sort of two pieces to it. First of all, it was telling us that cannabis users, including our children, were buying their cannabis from dangerous organized crime figures. We heard gun runners, street gangs, remember all that? Well, the academic evidence didn't support that at all. Mm. In fact, what's even more interesting is even the government's own intel told them that was not true. And I poured through annual reports from the uh, Canadian Prosecution Service of Canada, the Criminal Intelligence Service of Canada. There was a report from the Department of Justice Canada, and they all came to the same conclusion, which is the role of organized crime in the illegal cannabis trade was negligible. I, 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 I don't know if this constitutes dangerous, but I had a weed dealer for 10 years who used to like ride his rollerblades in and out of traffic really quickly. So that was pretty helpful. <laughs> but I, I, I'm actually surprised about that because I actually thought that one of the good reasons to legalize was to take away a revenue stream from organized crime. But you're saying that the evidence didn't didn't wash with that. No, no, it was it was I mean, yes, there were a few bad players, but that was a very small, as I said, negligible piece of it. Most uh, people who were involved in the cannabis trade were, I mean, apart from selling cannabis, were law abiding people, you know, not yeah. that different from most Canadians. And I cover that in a fair bit of detail in the book to to, to tell that. But 
the piece that now let's think about what was the other part of the Liberal Party's case for, for legalization. They were telling us we were going to have a regulated law abiding industry that would produce safe product of known integrity and that and that they would pay taxes. Now, you know, those are actually decent reasons for legalizing cannabis, um, but it didn't work out so well. And we can sort of circle back to that. But to get back to the other piece, uh, what the Liberal Party was not telling us in all their pageantry around this was that a, a group of its elite members and their loyal servants in the bureaucracy were all jumping on the ship of, of, uh, of cannabis legalization. They were investing in companies. They were joining the cannabis companies. And to help things along, I mean, there were several big cannabis industry players on the Liberal Party's board of directors. Yeah. Uh, and then, remember, we established a task force. The, to, uh, and the job of the task force was to consult with experts and Canadians and they make recommendations to directly to cabinet about what this marijuana industry should look like. And well, guess what? Both the chair and the co-chair of that task force had pre-existing ties to the cannabis industry and even greater ambitions. So this whole thing, uh, you know, yeah. really talk, was a, a little bit suspect from the beginning. We talked today, and I will honor uh, our conversation by uh, by maintaining the anonymity of a person. But I, when you told me that there were certain people that um, had ties to the investment part of this, I recalled in being in a meeting with uh, with a few people and one of those people were there and they were the only one in the room that was expressing concerns. And 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 to look at that in hindsight was very eye-opening for me because then that person puts a little bit of, you know, uh, of a buffer, I guess, between being suspected of like helping somebody out or whatever. Were you able to untie or, or explain um, how it was that all of these inner circle people got on the ground floor? No. Um, I mean, the, I think it's pretty clear that it happened. It's been well documented by a number of, of various journalists who sort of looked into the ties. And as you said, Jody Emery did a great job mm. concentrating on all the former law officials, yeah. uh, law enforcement officials that got involved in it. But how that process happened, that's all part of the sort of the backroom mystique. And uh, yeah. we, we may never know yeah. how that happened. In, in and the way, other thing that I think is interesting is the final report of that task force is still not publicly available. Well, in a way, it's the original Greenbelt scandal, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry, that's a bad pun. Um, there's also the question of politicians and their principles. This issue really exposed a lot of politicians as being um, ditherers. And uh, like you mentioned the interviews that I did at the uh, Liberal Convention in January 2012. So I interviewed Paul Martin, and he looked like a deer in headlights. He was like, uh, well, I'm like, do you think it's time to have an adult conversation about this? And he's like, yes, yes, an adult conversation, uh, think is okay. I got to go behind this curtain. Um, uh, who was it? Stefan Dion was like, well, I uh, don't think that, uh, oh, I don't know. And then Justin Trudeau, which you mentioned. Um, I interviewed him, and he was, it was kind of a classic politician interview. He was like, I can see the argument that some would have because alcohol is legal, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember it word for word, and, and that. And then when he pivoted to the other side of the issue, because he was basically speaking out of both sides of his mouth, he's like, it was very more serious and more forceful as he said, 
I don't think it's the type of thing that our society wants to do since we're trying to curb drinking and smoking cigarettes. And then um, when, he le- when he announced that he wanted to legalize a few years or a couple years later, Ezra Levant played that clip over and over and over again. And I was like, he's got a point. He didn't give me any money or ask my permission for the clip, but he had a point, right? And it made me realize, looking at, you made me realize that that whole job, and I was, I guess I was basically an unregistered lobbyist in a, in a lot of ways, because I worked for four or five months pressuring marijuana advocacy groups to pressure delegates to flip that vote from no to yes, uh, from 30% to 70%. We got 78, I think. And, uh, and then I realized later on that, um, all of those things, I, I didn't want legalization to actually be rolled out where the government controlled it, like the LCBO, because I thought that there were, if you're going to turn a blind eye to dispensaries and then legalize and then shut the dispensaries down, that doesn't make any sense. There was already a market in place. How did this industry lose so many millions of dollars during the first couple of years? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Yeah. I think there's a few things that happen. First of all, this is what happens when corporations take over rather than relatively yeah. small time businesses and, and so forth is is they got they got greedy for one thing. Mm. And the other is that they grossly overestimated the market for cannabis. I think the mistake they made is they thought that cannabis was going to become the new alcohol and any undergraduate student in epidemiology or marketing research would have easily accessed the data to show them that alcohol was used by about 78% of the population, and at that time, cannabis by about 15%. And we knew that they weren't going to be able to advertise the way alcohol is advertised so aggressively now. So there's no way that cannabis was going to quickly become the new alcohol. That just was not going to happen. But for whatever reason, they didn't see that. They also overestimated how easy it was going to be for foreign markets to develop for recreational cannabis. And as we know, that has not happened nearly as quickly as they assumed. So that was one problem, just that blunder. Then what they did is the, the executives of these big corporations were really incentivized in a way that killed them. They were incentivized for long-term growth. And by incentivized, I meant they would get bonuses based on long-term growth of the industry, not immediately getting product out to, out to consumers. So their solution to that was to build some of the biggest, to build and buy some of the biggest greenhouses that the world has ever seen. And most of them ended up sitting mostly empty. 
and then being sold at enormous losses. And then, you know, the this industry was totally supported by enthusiastic investment. And these CEOs and executives were walking off as new multimillionaires while the companies were, were losing. You know, I think Marijuana Business Daily put it at at least $20 billion of investors' money was lost by these big $20 billion. That's, I'm not making a mistake. It's not million, it's billion, $20 and, billion. Dollars and I remember how livid, this is kind of funny in a way, but I, how livid weed smokers were when they found out that this surplus weed that they had cost too much to put in freezers and they didn't have the capacity, so they just destroyed it. They burned it. And yeah. that, listen, like it's funny in a way, but then it's also like, that is the part of, of, of capitalism when you apply it to something like a recreational drug or alcohol, whatever, that doesn't make sense. It, it, it's something that like, you know, I don't even know how to like. I, I get it makes sense if you're like a die in the wool capitalist, but to everybody else, it's like, what are you doing? Like, you're just you're you're burning yeah. money in a sense. And I guess you don't want to be a socialist and spread the wealth or whatever. But you know, <laughs> there's got to be a way that you can make something like that work. Create edibles or like or or yeah. something. You know, export it to somewhere. You know, like I don't know. Yeah. I'm not that it, smart, but you know, it, it was a disaster. You know, and just to sort of put an exclamation point on that is that again, Marijuana Business Daily they they reported that between 2018 and 2020, the industry actually incinerated more cannabis than it sold. Oh my god! That's how badly they overestimated the market. And there was one company I can't remember which one it was now, but one of them actually anticipating how much it was going to have to continue to incinerate, it actually bought its own incinerator rather than outsourcing the job. That's yeah. how bad it was. It, the the rollout was so bad that, and I think a lot of people would have done this anyways, but the rollout was so bad that most of the people that I know that get their, that, that smoke weed on a regular basis, they get it from reserves. They, yeah. It's better quality. I know, listen, I know it's black market, whatever you want to call it, but it's better quality, it's cheaper, and it doesn't require a box this big to get something that's that big, which I've never understood. I, I don't, I think that, that you know, the, the way that, and the advertising, I'm um, sorry, I'm, I'm sort of being a scatterbrain right now. But no, I, no, that's good. My podcast, there's a local store here called um, Bay Bud. And I approached them when my, my, my show was still uh, fairly young, like after 50 or whatever episodes and asked them if he wanted to be like a sponsor for the show. And then he showed me the legislation that uh, dictates how you can, market cannabis and i was like this is crazy there's no way to do it effectively unless you make fun of it unless you go like this come to bay bud we sell beep and then also beep and if you really want the best beep and then you just have to do it like that because there's no way to do it properly why is it for most um doctors and social workers and people like that they will tell you alcohol has ruined millions and millions of families and people there are very few cases where weed has done the same thing why the um, implication that it's a more harmful substance for you than alcohol in regards to marketing? Right. Well, let me let me use one set of statistics to to respond to that. Is there's a, a database here in Ontario that I helped to develop, and it keeps track of people who enter treatment programs for drug problems, and yeah. the most common by far is alcohol. At, on any given day in Ontario, there are 40,000 people in treatment for an alcohol problem in this province. Well, interestingly, guess what? Second, this is going to surprise a lot of people. It's cannabis. 
at twenty thousand on on any yeah, but given those are day, mostly from plea deals. No, no, I, I looked into that. I mean, that's no, that's a fair response. And I, yeah. I so I looked into that. And out of those twenty thousand, the most likely that that would res, that that would account for is two thousand of those twenty thousand. Oh, okay. So there, there are. This yeah. is, a, you see, there's so many. I call them appetites of pleasure. Whether we're talking alcohol, uh, tobacco, you know, cannabis, whatever it is, gaming. There's a yeah. certain portion of the population who will find a way to use it in a way that it's harmful. And it would be naive to think, because cannabis is a nice-feeling, pleasurable drug, and there is a portion of the population who seem to have a problem with it. They get dependent on it. It's causing problems in their lives, and they can't stop. So they yeah, go to a treatment program. It's a mental, it's a mentally addictive drug. I know people that, uh, that have an issue with, uh, with weed. Um, they're the people that wake up, uh, and the first thing they do is light a joint. I talked to a Rastafarian once, actually. He's like, weed is not supposed to be a substance that you use where your tolerance increases. You're supposed to use weed in a way where you... Well, I know this is sounding weird, but coming from Rasta, it just sounded legit for me. But uh, he's like, you're only supposed to use it in a ritualistic way. And what he really meant by that, you don't have to be Rasta or religious, but um, use it at the same time of day, once a day. So like when the kids go to bed, that's when you use it, and then your tolerance level will never increase. Yeah. Once you, you start days day smoking, it, it all falls apart, I think. And your tolerance just keeps going up and up. You know, you raise a really interesting question. Uh, if we think about tobacco use in indigenous populations, it was purely ceremonial for, for special occasions. It wasn't until we created, well, guess what? Big tobacco companies, corporations to commercialize it and yeah. promote it. That's when tobacco became a problem for our society. It's, and it's one of the things that I think we really need to think about is that it's not just about the intrinsic properties of the drug. It's about how we think about drugs yeah. and, and how we're taught to think about it. I mean, I grew up in an era of constant, I mean, constant tobacco and alcohol advertising. And I have a whole chapter in the book about that. And it's, it's all about what does alcohol and tobacco do for you? It makes you more popular. It makes you a better lover. It, make, it will improve your love life. I mean, those were the messages that I grew up on with alcohol and tobacco, you know. Yeah. And I think this is what worries people about, about cannabis is if we're not careful, cannabis can go down that same road. And it's got nothing to do with the drug cannabis about how safe it is. It's got everything to do with how all the powers of marketing can influence the way a next generation will grow up thinking about it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I think that their marketing for weed is, is very juvenile, especially the edibles. Mm. And, and, you know, and which causes a bunch of ancillary impacts like kids thinking that they're eating candy and they're not. I'm, you know, that, that's kind of a problem. But when I go to a dispensary, say in Toronto, and I'm like, by the way, I've lived out of Toronto for six years, so now I pronounce the second T. Sorry about that. Um, but when I go to Toronto and I go to a dispensary, I, I, I'm looking at the, the edibles and I'm just like, am I six? Like, why do I want a sour key? I never buy sour keys. I never like buy any of this candy shit. I want like a grown-up edible. I want a Tic Tac or a Lodgings or something like that. And I want it to be like, um, you know, for the end of day comfort, you know, or something like that. Not, not like zany and wacky. I, I, I think the marketing kind of is the self-defeating proposition for them where they, they're constantly aiming at younger generation. Yes. But once you look at Generation X and up, just enough with the candy already. We don't eat candy, most of us, yeah. you know?
Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. not sure why, you know, anyway, the, the, so give me an idea then um, about whether or not you see hope for how the government is handling legalization now and into the next, say, decade. Well, have you ever tried to get toothpaste back in the tube? <laughs> yes, but I was on but yes, but I was on high grade mushrooms at the time. So. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's I think it's going to be really difficult. And one of the best reports that I've read on cannabis legalization still was one that was produced in, I think, 2014 by a U.S. organization called the Rand Corporation. Mm -hmm. And they really recommended that, you know, we should not go from prohibition to big corporatized, commercialized cannabis because you're never going to be able to undo it if, yeah. if you do, or at least it's going to be extremely difficult. Now, I think for Canada... What I would like to see, I'd be willing, I, I could support giving this a shot, is taking some of the concentration off these big cannabis factories and corporations and putting more focus on a network of smaller craft growers. And I think that would make, I would make everybody except the corporate people happy. Yeah. Uh, public health people, uh, health policy people would be more comfortable with it. Consumers would be more comfortable with it. I've talked to retailers and I've talked to a guy who runs a testing lab and they didn't even hesitate. They, they said, you know what? The craft grower stuff is far better quality oh, than, yeah. what's, than what's coming out of these big cannabis factories. So I, I think that is, I think, a reasonable solution for Canada. I'm not convinced that our current government is, is going to support that. In fact, they're, they're toying with actually establishing an industry roundtable for cannabis oh, to look at ways to promote this industry. So now they're hesitating on it. They're, they're lo maybe losing enthusiasm for it. I don't know, but it just sounds like a waste of time and money to me. Like really, oh, like it's, like, it's really uh, to educate themselves and to protect themselves from decisions they've already made. Right. Like it's, you know, well, and also to protect their investments. Right. I mean, remember these guys, probably invested a lot of money in this industry and they're losing their shirts yeah. because these big companies, their stocks are tanking. And so I, you know, I think there's that element of it as well. Is there an industry or is it even legal? Cause I don't, I honestly don't know um, for consultants to help people grow their home weed. <laughs> I've well, never heard of such a thing. It, it was thinking about it. As you mentioned, it would surprise me if it didn't exist, but yeah. I mean, the, the, but you know, I don't Jody, know of it. As Jody Emery used to like to point out, um, before weed was legalized, there were like nine different types of charges that you could be charged with uh, related to possession. And now there's 44. <laughs> so, oh, you know, there's, yeah. there's a downside to all this. Um, I mentioned magic mushrooms as a joke, but do you have any, are, are you working on any additional books in the future for things like psilocybin? Well, I, I, I've thought of it. Um, I don't know if I have another book in me or not, maybe, but I do have a chapter uh, in near the end of the book where I talk about, you know, cannabis is the thin edge of the wedge. It's not the end of this is if you look at what we see with with magic mushrooms, it's following exactly the same pattern that that we saw within the early days of cannabis. And the, the thing that will pivot it is if we start getting a lot of uh, politicians investing in those companies yeah. that are producing it for medical use which is what happened with cannabis 
once we see the politicians invested in that industry, then we will see the political action to legalize it for recreational use. Once there is that, um, that you know, financial incentive at the political level, will they do a better job than they did with cannabis? Uh, I'd be a bit skeptical. And it's yeah. not, I have anything against, you know, I, I don't want people to go to jail for cannabis. I don't want them to be charged or arrested for mushrooms either, or for any drug. And yeah. I have that in the chapter too. I mean, I'm yeah. a strong supporter of decriminalization of all drugs, but because of what we've seen with our legal drug industries and now cannabis, I'm very nervous about legalization. And to your earlier point regarding um, pharmaceutical companies, um, I have two things to say about that. One, um, I have been a recreational drug user for a lot of my life. I am now very much, um, you know, uh, well, I'm pretty much sober now. But the biggest problem that I had uh, with any drug was a pharmaceutical drug. You know, I, I, when I over-medicated my, with my ADHD medication, I had to go to the hospital. Um, not for an OD, well, maybe it was sort of an OD thing, but I had to go and get my head right, you know what I mean? And, and that had never happened with any of the recreational drugs. I, admittedly, I probably should have been a more moderate drug user my whole life, and, and that's water under the bridge now. But I am afraid that the, um, and I was talking to somebody about this earlier, about whether or not pharmaceutical companies already own the patent to the uh, synthesization of psilocybin. And I hope that's not the direction that it goes. I really like think that that would be a, not only a huge mistake, but a, almost a criminal one and a gift to corporations once again when we don't need to go that route. I, I think it would be high risk. I agree. And again, I do this in one in the last chapter of the book. I talk about again, I go back to alcohol, tobacco and pharmaceutical and say, here's what's happening these days. And one of the things that I think really concerns me is that there's a lot of people, executives from alcohol, tobacco and pharma who are now investing in our big cannabis companies. So that that concerns me as well. I mean, I think they will be more mature and better at making money, but I'm not sure that will be better for society as a whole the because those is, industries don't have a good track record. That's true. Um, the book is called Buzzkill, the corporatization of cannabis. Michael, thank you very much for joining us on Blackball today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, James. Thanks for asking me. You have a good day. Pretty compelling stuff. Um, I'll put the book up again just so you guys can go order it online. And it's called Buzzkill, the Corporatization of Cannabis. That's Michael R. DeViller, which is spelled D-E-V-I-L-L-A-E-R. Just make the A silent. It's DeViller. Um, really compelling stuff. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that because I make a very brief appearance in the book. But it, he taught me a whole bunch of things about how my very small role in the um, on in the uh, on, what would you call it the uh, the legalization process I guess um, had all these things around it that I wasn't even aware of um, and I asked him today on the phone I'm like was I a useful idiot or just a tool to sort of cushion certain people from being uh, suspected as giving people an inside lane to investment and he's like the latter probably but he's like and then we both kind of wondered whether or not I should have registered as a lobbyist I. I don't know if I, I didn't realize at the time that I might have been considered a lobbyist, but it was really interesting stuff. Um, so p please pick up the book. There are, are going to be um, uh, a couple announcements that I'm making. I'm still doing Black Bold America, but I, I want my first guest to be a specific person, and I won't tell you who that is yet. So I'm waiting uh, for schedules to become in sync. So until then, we will see you next time on Black Bold. Thanks, everybody. Black Bold. Black, 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 black
Your favorite girl. That's right, it's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.